This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The Future of Media Explained. With me, Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. And this week, we're learning all about how to build recession-proof news business. Joining me in the studio to answer this rather pressing conundrum, we have Press Gazette's Associate Editor, Will Turvel. Hi, Will. Hello, Dom. So, it's a pressing issue. The economy is looking a little bit wobbly, isn't it? You've been speaking to M. Scott Havens about all this. Tell us who Scott Havens is, Will. Scott Havens is the chief executive of Bloomberg Media. He took over the role earlier this year, replacing Justin Smith, who you may remember we did a few interviews with during his time at Bloomberg Media. Justin Smith went off to Semaphore, and Scott Havens is now taken over as the chief executive of Bloomberg Media. And he used to be CEO of The Atlantic, I think, didn't he? So he knows his onions. Yeah, I think he was president, but that may be the same thing at The Atlantic. I'm not 100% sure. And he was also at Time Inc. So, yeah, he's a big media man in the US. So Bloomberg Media, remind me, Bloomberg Media is different from the Bloomberg Terminals business that we all know and love, isn't it? Yes, we all know and love that. And we have all got enough money to pay for the Bloomberg Terminals business. Yeah, we absolutely love it. Maybe we're just speaking for you and maybe that just shows that we're a bit cut off from the mod from the common man. But yeah, Bloomberg Media is the consumer arm of Bloomberg as a whole, which is obviously owned by billionaire Mike Bloomberg, who had a party in London last week, I understand. Were you invited? I couldn't make it, unfortunately. I was washing my hair. So Bloomberg Media, it says Websites, TV, Business Week magazine, is that right? Yeah, that that all comes under the umbrella, yeah. Radio stations, I think, as well. All sorts, yeah. Digital video. They used to have a digital video platform called TikTok, which they had to rename Quick Take because of the slightly more successful social media platform called TikTok. Is that a true story? It's a true story, yeah. That's a brilliant snippet. Thank you. I can't actually remember whether they renamed it after TikTok or before TikTok, but either way, it did used to be called TikTok. So why are we talking to Scott Havens now? I was curious to speak to him because Bloomberg Media regularly put out figures showing how much it's growing its business. And in the first half of this year, it grew its revenues by 24%, which is pretty impressive. And uh, break, breaking that out a bit, its advertising was up 29%. Its subscriptions revenue was up 27%. So basically, since I've been covering Bloomberg Media, which is a couple of years, because obviously I used to be our North America editor, it always just seems to be growing 
very strongly. And with a recession looming, I was interested to speak to Scott about whether he is confident in his business. And if so, what makes him confident? So how bad is it all going to get, Will? Funnily enough, Dom, my opening question to Scott was how he is feeling about the state of the media industry currently. I'm feeling quite optimistic, to be honest. I think there's a lot of innovation in the space. I think the investments in multiple revenue streams over the last five to 10 years have paid some dividends, ourselves included, which we'll talk about. And while certainly there's some headwinds out there in the global macroeconomic situation, as well as pandemic and RTO challenges we all face, I feel like the industry is in a pretty good situation at this juncture to weather the storm. And frankly, there's been consolidation as well in the industry to, to bolster those many businesses. There's been roll-ups. Those that have struggled to make it over the many years probably are not around as independent entities. Okay. And Bloomberg Media put out some impressive figures last month for the first half of this year. Revenue up 24%, advertising up 29%. Subscriptions up 27%, digital video up 51%, events up 53%. So that sounds pretty strong. How's it looking for the second half of the year? I think it's clear the first half will be stronger than the second half, probably for most people. We will still have growth in the second half for sure, but we came around the corner to 2021 in strong fashion and had a great first half. But we'll still have a very good growth here overall. But clearly the looming recession, depending on where you are, is taking its toll on decisions being made by both consumers and marketers. Having said that, the last two weeks for us on the advertising side have been terrific. We've booked a lot of new business, a good business, multi-million dollar business. And so it's a little bit of a mixed bag. It's not, things are not in dire straits for sure. It always seems like since I've been covering Bloomberg Media, at least that it always seems to be doing a pretty solid job generally ahead of competitors or in line with them. What do you put that down to? I think our ruthless focus on getting great talent, building a diverse, supportive, inclusive, high-performing culture, and then and then just focusing on execution, really. It, I think, I don't think it's much more complicated than that. And that is a, a formula that I've landed on over the last 15 years doing this. It really does come down to people and how they work together. And, and if you can do that, then you can have market-leading success. Now, of course, Having a good brand, putting yourself in the right position, being in growth markets, having an audience like we do, an affluent, high income set of decision makers like Bloomberg might capture and does capture. It certainly it's helpful, but a lot of the places that we've gone have been by design. And that is coming from our talent that is listening to the market, is experienced in innovation, and it is always looking for new things. That That's why I think we've been able to outperform. Honestly, I think it comes down to having a really great team. Yeah. And Bloomberg's, I'd say, renowned, certainly in the UK, I think in the US as well, for paying journalists and talent well to to recruit them and to persuade them to join. Is that a lesson you think that other media companies could learn from? Look, I think it's hard to retain talent if the financial consideration doesn't meet their expectations or even the market expectations. And I recognize that Given the incredible business model that we have and the very successful enterprise business that was built in 1981, we're in a better position to pay market compensation than perhaps a small startup. 
Yeah, it matters. People, if you ask people what's most important for them staying in their job, they would list out things like career passing and opportunities and opportunity to manage and working for a brand they respect. They'd also put compensation right at the top. So it's helpful. I don't know that some of our competitors that doesn't pay well. Certainly we've had people poached that have had salary increases at the new places that we compete with, but it's certainly helpful to be able to pay people what they, what they deserve and what they want. How's the advertising market looking currently? You mentioned this, the second half of this year is not looking as good overall as the first half potentially in terms of growth. I'd be interested to hear what you're seeing in the advertising market currently. I think coming out of the pandemic, the beginning of the pandemic, where there was confusion, fear that in the early stage of 2020, the advertising market, particularly the brand advertising market really took off. And so we've had unbelievable growth. As you probably heard from us, we grew almost 50% last year. A lot of that was driven on the advertising side. So the idea that we could grow, replicate that in 2022 was always going to be very challenging. The advertising market overall doesn't grow much more than inflation more broadly across the entire market, all platforms. So we had these incredible growth rates last year. We started off first half incredibly strong. We'll still have good growth in the second half. There are pockets of, of advertisers that perhaps are a little wary about 2023 and how the rest of this year is going to go. So you see some clients, obviously I'm not going to name names, but maybe wanting to delay a purchase or a campaign with us. We're seeing that. But as I just said, we, the last two weeks, we've had two very strong weeks and a lot of that's coming outside the U S too, which I, one of the benefits for us is our global reach. And I think when not markets are intertwined and they're connected around the world, whether they're financial markets or advertising markets, especially with many multinational companies, but there are, when you're, when you are operating almost in every country, you can have growth pockets and other softer pockets and still overall grow strongly. And that's what we're seeing. It's not the U.S. leading the way for us this year. It's Europe, Middle East, and APAC. And the growth rates there are much higher. They're smaller businesses, but they're growing fast. We've really invested in the people and the teams there and in our brand presence. It'll be a good second half. It just won't be as robust as what we've seen. I think we've grown eight quarters in a row and it's been, again, the pandemic has been a horrible scourge in the world and a lot of people have lost their lives. It's been terrible. But during that period, a lot of people turned to us both for subscriptions to help them navigate, whether it was health or their portfolio, but also advertisers needed to and wanted to reach our affluent and high income office audience. So we benefited in many ways from the last couple of years on a business side, even if the world's been in a tough place. And we seem to be heading towards quite a tough place economically, speaking about the world yeah. <laughs> overall. Is that an opportunity for Bloomberg Media in terms of subscriptions, do you think, in the same way that COVID-19 was? It's a good question. We haven't been through a recession it was since we launched our consumer subscription business. And so I, I don't know the answer to that. There are probably multiple forces that we're going to feel. One might be consumers looking at every expense. If, if this is a real recession, the deep recession that lasts for a couple of years, people do consider what they're paying for. And I think we've all expanded the number of subscriptions that hit our credit card every month, whether it's audio or stream weight loss news. So we've all watched this expand quite dramatically over the last, last several years. So people are going to look a little bit more closely at those credit card monthly statements. And the question is, are you 
necessary or are you a nice to have? I'd like to say we are a necessary utility for leaders to stay on top of what's happening around the world. And I would assume many of our customers expense or are able to expense business media subscription like ours. So that's, I think, helpful. So I don't know the answer to that. I think on in terms of the volatility in the markets, we also, let's not forget, there's a war happening in Europe. Plus, there is there are many other conflicts around the world. The world is not necessarily in a stable place. And so they do turn, people turn to a trusted source. We're one of those. I think we get a lot of credit for being data-driven objective and not partisan and biased as a news entity. So people do come to us for that and they need to understand what's happening. People also are very interested in their wealth and how their portfolios are doing. And so, of course, we play a role there in telling people what's happening at the financial markets in a way that only a few providers around the world could tell the depth that we do. I don't know, Net, is this good or bad? I would like to think that in a period that we're likely to enter the next couple of years, slow down volatility, perhaps even scarier conflicts around the world, that we would be a voice that people would turn to and it would be net beneficial, but we'll find out. The chief executive of Axel Springer, which of course owns Politico and Insider in the US, recently said that he sees many US media outlets now as suffering from a bit of partisanship and he thinks that's an opportunity for Politico. Do you see a similar opportunity for Bloomberg Media? I do. I do think over the last, uh, it's longer than several years, but it's probably more like the last decade or two. In the US media market, there have been media entities that have drifted left or right in order to serve their base and create that engagement that they all crave, which is understandable. I think from my perspective, it's, it's not helpful if the electorate is operating from a different set of facts. And it, and it's made things, certainly in this country, challenging to get anything done, to collaborate across the aisle, both in Congress, but even in communities. We're seeing this in my community around curriculum and books. And, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so I absolutely value the role that Bloomberg News can play with. We have the largest, arguably the largest newsroom in the world, and the focus of that newsroom is to get the story right so that people can make business decisions, financial decisions, investment decisions. And that wasn't set up to be a media brand that played down the middle for, you know, some other noble purpose. It was really set up to serve the terminal, it was set up to serve those customers. And it just so happens that the world has changed a lot since the 80s and 90s. And now we're in this, I think, unique position to to actually be a media source that can help bridge the gap here and be trusted and relied upon. Absolutely. I think there's an opportunity here. It wasn't too long ago where people in the media business said, if you don't pick a lane and super serve your audience, your partisan audience, that you wouldn't survive. Being in the middle was a bad thing, bad for business. And we saw this certainly on cable news in the United States. Our view is that was a moment in time and that actually there's a higher purpose for an objective data-driven platform like ourselves. So yeah, I think it's a great opportunity and I'm sure others are thinking about it. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale, might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? 
that the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are, but that guts and blubber and ribcage are on display. A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious. And Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. On subscriptions, the last I reported, Bloomberg Media had 385,000 consumer subscriptions. That was in May. How is that business looking now? Um, We're probably uh, closer to 450,000. The big uh, development with our business is that we started to sell group or enterprise level corporations to universities, to nonprofits, government entities. So that allows us to increase the number of seats more quickly than each individual subscription. And so that's what we've been focused on quite a bit. And hopefully we'll cross, we'll cross over that 500,000 very, very soon. I can't give you the month that will happen, but that's been a big boon to the business for sure. We, Press Gazette, reported a couple of months ago on your growth in the, your investment in the United Kingdom, which is an opportunity. And I believe you're you're spending a bit of time in the United Kingdom next month. How has that gone so far and which other geographies are you looking to expand into? So with the UK launch, which was quite honestly a a natural move for us, we've had four or 500 journalists in Queen Victoria office for a while there. We've really been covering London, UK, and more broadly Europe through that office. So it was a sort of a natural extension for us to add some investment personalize and regionalize the site a bit, add some talent like Allegra Stratton, for example, or Emma Barnett and others, Victoria Wakeley from BBC, and and try and reposition our brand with UK leaders in a way that I don't think they considered us as much previously. They thought of us as a platform for understanding the global business and political story and less so about the more regional and national story within UK and London. But of course, we were covering a lot of those those stories and a lot of those developments. So we really packaged everything up, launched some new podcasts, newsletters, video, and just and tuned our coverage at Parliament, Westminster, and 10 Downing. And it's paid off. We've had a nice lift in traffic. I don't have the exact numbers today on me, but we've, I'd say 20, 30% traffic. We've had an increase in our advertising market. It's never been, for us, the advertising business has never been stronger. I think that was starting before we launched Bloomberg UK, but I would say the the interest and exposure of launching that certainly helped grow our brand position with agencies and clients within the region and sums are up. So we're feeling good. The question I think for us now is not whether we continue doing this, is whether how much more we want to invest as we turn the corner into 2023. So this was designed, I think, is a bit of a model for us. We're fortunate that we have bureaus around the world. Fortunately, we have enough engineering and product and design resources to build regional editions. So we are looking at other places. We've got a site in Japan, a digital platform in Japan. Obviously, we have a presence in Australia, which is also in English speaking and 
and somewhat easy for us to do if we wanted to. And so we are, we're looking at some other places. It gets a little trickier when you move into countries who may have a large English speaking population, but if you don't, if you don't put out products or publish products that are in native language, you just by definition are going to miss out on a lot of the engagement and credibility. For example, France and Germany and Spain going in there with an English product is not going to make a mark for us. And, and so how do we do that? Those are markets that are important and hopefully technology here is going to be the answer the machine learning and AI now translation software, both for text and for audio and video has improved quite a bit. And so we can, we've been testing this out internally. We could take Bloomberg TV and change the on-screen graphics into Spanish, French, or German, Mandarin, Italian. And also we can change the voiceovers in real time also into those languages. We just, before we debut that anywhere around the world, we want to make sure that the quality control is where we need it to be. We don't need people making decisions based on our reporting. They're incorrect because the software program was confused. So we have to be very careful there. That's a, that's also another opportunity over the next couple of years for us to expand our footprint and do so in an authentic and native way to some of these countries so that it doesn't feel like an imperialist United States entrance. And we assume they speak English. So I'm intrigued by that. And it might be yeah. that on video or where we go first. And is that a tool that you're working on internally or are you working with an external company on that? Both. Certainly some of the big platforms, the Amazon and Google, they've had the technology that is usable and licensable for some of the translation. There are other small companies. There's one in the UK actually that we've been talking to that also does this for brands. I'd say Bloomberg tends to try and build things on its own first before yeah. it looks to the market. But in this circumstance, I think we'll probably leverage a lot of the brilliant scientific and engineering work that's been done by other people and bring those into our product suite. Sounds like a big opportunity for expanding your subscriber base, I'd say. I do think so. You want to compete with localized business and news platforms. I take the UK, for example, I, I would think a daily diet for a leader in the United Kingdom would include the Times of London, the Financial Times, and perhaps some other papers or tabloidy and sports and other things. But I don't know that that if you go back last year, they would say, oh, I need to check out Bloomberg too for my local and regional news. But now they are because we've got some new writers and we've got a new emphasis on covering that story. It's a different behavior. There are people that care about the global story and there are people that care more about the national story because it affects their business and their livelihood more. And if we can do both in certain big markets around the world, then I think it expands our opportunity beyond where we are today. What should the future relationship between big tech and the media look like, do you think? Yeah, I'm a bit of an outlier here, whereas many publishers have for years, if not decades at this point, railed against some of the big tech and big platforms and how they've disrupted or even destroyed their business unfairly. I've been more in the camp of these are amazing innovations. This is what the users want. And how do we adapt our business to be on these platforms, create engagement with our target audience and create a business model on top of that? I think there's no better example than the launch of QuickTake we did, which was called TikTok at the time, before the other TikTok exploded on, on, on Twitter and with Twitter. That was a collaborative effort that continues today where we create videos for that platform, news, trusted news and, and business videos for them. And we co-sell and we work together in some various ways, data and analytics too. 
And that's proven to be very fruitful for both of us. And as opposed to looking at it as looking from the sort of glass half empty, crying over spilled milk perspective, we, I say, and I've been doing this for a long time, these are wonderful inventions that aggregate audiences, the likes of which we've never seen in, <laughs> in the world, with billions of people. How, how do we adapt our business and make some money? And we've done that well. We are making tremendous amounts of money on these OTT platforms on YouTube, which is owned by Google. A lot of our referrals come from the social platforms and from Google. And, you know, I understand why people are trying to band together. I understand why they'd like to get platforms to pay them for content, et cetera. I just, I'm not sure that's the best use of time versus trying to figure out how to run your business in today's landscape. Do you have commercial relationships then with Google and Facebook currently? We pretty much work with everybody. Yeah. There, what is Facebook has, I don't know, a billion and a half people a day through their platforms. TikTok is in the billions now. People have decided that they want to use these platforms. Are In some cases, the audience isn't the perfect fit for us, but many cases they are there, especially the younger audiences that we covet for the long term. And yeah, in many cases, we do have a relationship with them or we've talked to them, met with them to figure out how best to leverage these platforms and the things that we can do. Not We don't want to violate terms of service on a platform. It's their platform to figure out how we can adapt our business successfully there and ask for help. So we do this all the time. So yeah, uh, there's almost nobody that we haven't or wouldn't work with unless we were upset with the terms or didn't agree with something they're doing. Is Bloomberg me paid partner of Facebook News? We are. We have been in that program. And that's phasing out apparently. Yes. So I think one thing that we, and if I'm being honest, we expected that to happen. I think over time, if you go back to early days of YouTube, or even when I was at Yahoo, which were the portals were the original platforms, we, there were, there was time where we licensed content. We brought in, we had our own creators. I launched one of the first original content platforms on Yahoo Finance in mid 2000s by hiring a bunch of columnists like Susie Orman. Ben Stein, Dan Fink, Jeremy Siegel to write original content for Yahoo Finance. And that was in some ways like a creator's project. And uh, so it's been going on for a long time. And what happens is the businesses, they experiment, they move. One thing you can say about these platforms, whether it's the original portals of the social media, they experiment, they try things, they launch things, they shut things down. And I actually, I think they're probably better than that, better at at killing projects than media companies, ourselves included. Bloomberg ran a headline yesterday that said, what is a chief metaverse officer and do you need one? Do you have a a chief metaverse officer? I didn't see that. I didn't see that article. (laughs) I probably should have read it. We do not. I'm not sure that we need to be putting a lot of our efforts and resources into the metaverse. I was around when Second Life, which was an early metaverse representation, popped up maybe 15 years ago. And I saw a lot of publishers setting up bureaus and on Second Life. And I think that's an interesting experiment. And you learn things and you learn what this audience is doing in the matter. Like, I think there's some nobility there. I know that some of our journalists have been playing around in there. Is there a huge business opportunity for us right now? Absolutely not. Does our audience spend a lot of time in the, our target audience, our core audience spend a lot of time in the metaverse? They absolutely do not. And, and no, we don't, we haven't hired a chief metaverse. I have asked our chief digital officer in our, to think about ways that we could experiment there or participate. I think we're probably more interested in things like blockchain and cryptocurrency, 
Like, for example, enabling our paywall. Do we want to go there? We haven't done this, but do we want to allow people to use cryptocurrency to pay for things, whether it's our paywall or any other products that we might launch? I think for the control of IP, do we use the blockchain in the future? We have a licensing business of photos. Can we help ourselves by using the blockchain so it's clear what who owns across the ecosystem, who owns the asset and how do you and, and, and improve ways to monetize it and control IP? M- maybe, yes. And there have been businesses that have tried to do this. Could we mint M- NFTs around our covers from Business Week as other publishers? Yes. And so we're thinking about it. We have, I think the issue for media companies mostly comes down to prioritization. If you've got a really talented group of people who have lots of ideas and the world changes so fast, there are always opportunities. You've just got to stack rank them and figure out what to do and what not to do. And, and that's a daily, weekly, monthly thing where we are looking at, should we do this right now or not? And, and this is one of those things where we're very interested. I don't see clear opportunities. And so, you know, it's on the back burner right now. And maybe that's a mistake, but I don't think so. I think it's the right thing. As we've already talked about, we're growing fast. We have all these opportunities around the world. And if I threw 10 people over to figure out the metaverse, it would take them off something that is clearly productive right now. And final question. We are facing tough economic times. We don't know what it's going to do to the advertising market. We don't know what it's going to do to the subscriptions market. But what kind of media, news media companies do you think are going to survive and thrive through this period? What ones that matter? I think that's easy to say and probably harder to define. But I do think when you go into these periods of time and you're not in a bull market where everyone feels flush with cash, pay for lots of subscriptions, advertisers are spending freely, you do separate the strong ones from the weaker ones who don't necessarily meet that must-have criteria we talked about earlier. So I think you'll see some of that. If it's a prolonged recession, you'll see the strong ones survive. And the strong ones not only are they must-haves, but they also probably have diverse and stable business models. One of the things that we've done quite well over the last few years is diversify away from solely advertising revenue. When I first got there in end of 2015, almost every, almost everything that we made was through advertising. Every dollar of revenue is advertising. We had a small events business. We had no, we had a little bit of a licensing business and we had a, we had no consumer subscription. So it was almost exclusively advertising. Today, advertising is roughly half of our business. Event sponsorships, which you might call advertising, but is a little bit different. Events plus sponsorship plus gate is 12 to 15%. Licensing 12 to 15%, depending on where things close this year. And then consumer 25, roughly a quarter of our business. We're more stable with multiple revenue streams. And I think that's really important when you get, when you run into a recession. If the advertising market drops 20, 30% for brands like us, we're, we're, we have other lines of revenue to, to support us. And so I think that, as I said earlier, I think the industry is in better shape. They also, you know, affiliate revenue, newsletter revenue, podcast revenue, video revenue, like lots of different parts of advertising, which some of which will be more stable during a recession. Uh, that, and so the industry is in a better place. We're in a good place for sure. So we'll see what, it, no one can project what's going to happen. This is the most unique period of time. I would say in the world's history, given the confluence of things that we're dealing with. And so certainly I don't really believe any of the projections for that. It's impossible to project what's going to happen. So we'll see, but I feel good about where we are and I feel good about the stalwarts in the industry that they have, they've 
bolstered their business models. They've made that many of the good ones, including friends like the Financial Times or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, they've survived the print to digital conversion. They made it in a decently fine fashion and then they've gotten a lot wiser and brought in some really good talent. I think those kind of brands, those legacy brands would be just fine if this is, if this is a bouncy road for the next couple of years. Great. And one actual final question, because yeah. I've just noticed it. What does the M in M Scott Taven stand for? <laughs> it's Matthew. I, I was named obviously by my parents when I was born. My, my mother got a little worried that my nickname would become Maddie. So they started calling me by my middle name and that was all fine. Except a bit annoying going to get a license or going to my <laughs> teacher would call me Matthew. And then when I ended up at business school after college, after university, they give you a nameplate and it said Matthew and the teacher, everyone was calling me Matthew. So I went up and had it changed to M Scott and that sort of stuck as, yeah. as my new name. So a new brand. So there you go, Dom. Next time someone asks you what the M in M Scott Haven stands for, you can tell them it's Matthew. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure the children will be asking me that when I get home this evening. So it's good. It's good to have that. Good to have that answer. So we don't all have proprietors quite as rich as Michael Bloomberg or a hugely lucrative financial terminals business to cross subsidise us. But mm. failing that, what are the things which publishers can can take away from that interview with Scott? So I think my main takeaways from that overall are that Scott Havens is well placed to make this judgment and. Reading between the lines from what he's saying, it does seem like we're heading into a tough period for the media sector. I guess what other publishers can learn from what he said, not every chief executive can build a business that looks like Bloomberg Media. Not everyone has the resources, as you say. Not everyone's got a billionaire backer who is keen to support journalism in this way. But I do think there are some lessons from that that other publishers can take on board for the future and for dealing with future financial slowdowns and issues. So I'd say that the main things I noted were that it's important to have diverse revenues. So Bloomberg Media's got advertising, which made up nearly all of its business, Scott said, in 2015. Now it's got digital subscriptions, possibly around 450,000 of them now. I know he said that they're not going to do anything with the metaverse at the moment, but they've got it on their radar. They've got blockchain they're looking at closely, NFTs, this the translation tools that he mentioned to diversify and um, expand Bloomberg further into the world. So diversity is important and not just diversity of revenue streams, but also diversity of locations. And that's part of the reason that they've expanded in the UK and they're expanding in Europe and they're expanding in Asia is because they want to have a business where when the US is struggling, they can still grow revenues in Europe and elsewhere. So I think those are two important things as something that other chief executives can consider without necessarily being able to expand in the same way. I quite liked the fact that Scott Havens believes in investing in journalists and paying good journalists. I would obviously like that. Please take note, Dom. And I guess the other interesting takeaway which uh, which I'll be writing about for Press Gazette's website this week, is that Scott thinks that impartial news is coming back into vogue and that after years in which he said it wasn't long ago when people in the media business said that you needed to pick a lane and super serve your partisan audience and that if you didn't do that, you wouldn't survive. And that was it was bad business not to be skewed in some way. So it's interesting now that he's confident that actually a business like Bloomberg News that's not skewed and is pretty down the middle is now, has now got a big opportunity for growth. So I'd say those were my main takeaways. 
Great. Thanks, Will. The thing I like about Bloomberg is it's on lots of platforms, isn't it? I think they take the view that um, they get the audience, and if they get the right audience, which in their case is business movers and shakers, then the commercial model will follow, and I think it has worked for them. Yeah, I think it's, it's an excellent business. Thanks, Will. So you've been listening to The Future of Media Explained with me, Dominic Ponsford, Press Gazette's Associate Editor, Will Turville, and expertly produced, as always, by Adrian Bradley. Please like us and subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. And you can find out more about all the issues we discuss on the podcast on pressgazette.co.uk. Listener.